but we just want to celebrate your generosity uh, to the work of bearing Christ to the nations. Our missionary projects last weekend brought in $22,260 for the various projects that went on that our missionaries requested help with. The Lottie Moon Christmas slash Valentine's Day offering, um, which goes to fund the salaries of International Mission Board missionaries, that was $35,553. The total was $57,813 were raised last week through your generosity to take the mercy of Christ to people who are yet to hear. So, um, yay God, yay church, uh, you're to be encouraged. A little applause is perfectly appropriate for one another at that point in time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, bow with me. Let's thank God for his mercy, if you would. Lord, you are, you are so kind to us that you give us this gospel, and then we get to give it away to people we know and love. They live next door to us. They are our family. And then to take it to the nations where people have never heard the name of Jesus. Lord, may every dollar that was gifted last weekend further your, your kingdom and your, your message to all peoples. And uh, Lord, may your words now take root in our lives, especially in our families this morning, in our marriages. Um, ready our hearts to receive it by faith, with gladness and hope in you, O oh God, we pray. Amen. So Jesus has this uncanny way of turning everything upside down, if you haven't noticed. Uh, he, he doesn't think like we do be, because he's God, right? Um, he says things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And again, he says to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. In our study of 1 Peter, it's as though uh, Peter is roaming through the household of faith and he is turning everything a bit upside down. He says, um, citizens, submit to your government in chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. He he walks into a room full of slaves and he says, slaves be subject to your masters. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now today, he finds himself walking up next to wives. And he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so in our passage today in 1 Peter 3, 
Peter calls wives to be subject to their own husbands, which is why I'm wearing this jacket. It's a bulletproof jacket today. <laughs> Thought it would be appropriate that I busted it out. Um, but ladies, what I want you to see, and the, these first six verses in our passage are for you if, uh, today, and I hope that you, uh, by faith, can receive these as God's kindness to you. Um, he, he calls wives to be subjects to their own husbands, um, continuing this upside pattern of upside down pattern of thinking, he says that is the place of influence. Okay. This is what he's saying to wives. This is the place of influence. Um, so he gives his directive: be subject to your own husbands, not to all husbands, not to all men. He's talking about marriage here. And then it's as though he turns to a worst case scenario, a hardest case scenario, when your husband disobeys the word. And in all likelihood here, his primary focus is on women who have unbelieving husbands. And he says that from this place of submission, God grants you such influence that from there, he can use you to bring your husband to faith in Christ without a word. Which is really quite remarkable. This is another one of those upside down ideas. It would seem that the place of influence would be at the top of the org chart, right? But that's not what he says. He says it's a place down low. It's from this place, the place of submission, that a believing wife wields tremendous spiritual influence. And Paul, when he writes about this, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, he, he broadens um, this not just to the wives of unbelieving husbands, but to all wives because he connects it with enduring spiritual truths. Professor Karen Jobes writes about it. She says, Paul's in Ephesians 5, roots the submission of the wife to the husband in the relationship between Christ and the church and in the creation of marriage as a one flesh union. The Christian man must love his wife as Christ loved the church and as he loves himself, the Christian wife must submit to her own husband and must respect her husband. And you get the sense that surely if the place of submission of a wife is such a place of powerful spiritual influence that it can draw an unbelieving husband to faith, surely it can also greatly impact a believing husband who is in disobedience to God's word. So, my sister, I hope you hear today that if you want to be in a position of great positive spiritual influence in your husband's life, Peter is pointing you to this challenging place, the place of submission. And he says, it acts like a pedestal in this upside down kind of way. It acts like a pedestal to display your Christ-likeness. Because this 
this place of submission, it is also the place of Christ, right? Uh, there's a, a guy named Frank Laubach who evidently had some free time, and so he went through the Gospel of John counting every time that Jesus was in submission to the Father. And he came up with 47 times in the Gospel of John where, where Jesus says things like, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And so it is from this place of Christ-likeness that your relationship with God is on display most powerfully to your husband, Peter is saying. From there, they can see your respectful and pure conduct. And that conduct that he's writing about there is particularly Godward. Okay? Um, so when he says respectful conduct, it's the idea of fear, fearful conduct. And it's not towards the husband, it's towards God. So maybe a better way to say respectful would be reverent. There, your reverent conduct towards God. And pure conduct, of course, has to do with abstaining from sin. Again, a Godward kind of attitude. Both of these are Godward oriented. Peter is saying that as you live your life in submission before your husband, your reverence for God and your resistance to sin are put on, on compelling display from that place. Now, the Godward orientation of your reverent and pure conduct implies there are limits to your submission. Okay. It is not to carry you places where your conduct disobeys God, right? That would be contrary to what he just said. You would just be displaying the wrong kind of conduct in your submission. It must not carry you to places of disobedience to God. It must not carry you into sin. That neuters it of its power, which is found in exalting your God-honoring conduct. So, clearly, ladies, your communion with God matters in all this. It is what is on display through your submission. And it has great power to draw a wayward, unbelieving husband to God. So much so that Peter says they could be one even without a word. Even without a word. It's not that you cannot speak a word about Jesus to your husband, but that your greatest influence for your husband is your life. Emphasis is on your conduct, Peter says, and that conduct is to be put on the pedestal of submission. This would seem to rule out nagging as a form of spiritual influence. Um, no one has ever been badgered into the kingdom. Okay? It's just not what God chooses to do. Um, Amy Sutherland 
has some, an interesting perspective that bumps up against this. She wrote a, a New York Times article called, What Shamu Taught Me About a Happy Marriage. And uh, she says that after 12 years of marriage, she began to become dismayed that her husband still irritated several irritating habits. Imagine that. Her reaction, she says, to this realization is shared by many women. She says, these minor annoyances are not the stuff of separation and divorce, but in some, they begin to dull my love for Scott. I wanted, needed, to nudge him a little closer to perfect, to make him into a mate who might annoy me a little less, who wouldn't keep me waiting at restaurants, a mate who would be easier to love. And so, she says, like many wives before me, I ignored a library of advice books and set about improving him. By nagging, of course, which only made his behavior worse. He'd drive faster instead of slower, shave less frequently, not more, and leave his reeking bike garb on the bedroom floor longer than ever. And then the article says that there's a breakthrough when Amy went to began traveling to a school for exotic animal trainers in California to research a book that she wanted to write. This is what she said. I listened rapt as professional trainers explained how they taught dolphins to flip and elephants to paint. Eventually, it hit me that the same techniques might work on that stubborn but lovable species, the American husband. She says, the central lesson I learned from exotic animal trainers is that I should reward behavior I like and ignore behavior I don't. She says, after all, you don't get a sea lion to balance a ball on the end of its nose by nagging. The same goes for the American husband. Back in Maine, she says, I began thanking Scott if he threw one dirty shirt into the hamper. If he threw in two, I'd kiss him. Meanwhile, I would step over any soiled clothes on the floor without one sharp word, though I did sometimes kick them under the bed. And as he basked in my appreciation, she says, the piles became smaller. Okay, you get the idea, right? Ladies, Peter says, it is by your godly influence, especially your conduct, that you will have the greatest influence on wayward and unbelieving husbands. And Peter really presses this idea that, that witness flows out of life, out of conduct, throughout his letter. Back in chapter 2, for instance, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In verse 15, same chapter, chapter 2, he says, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Clearly, Peter thinks that godly conduct is a powerful witness to the gospel, especially for wives of unbelieving or wayward husbands. And so towards that end, he continues in verses three and four, and he says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, is very precious. So, submission is a pedestal that puts godly conduct on display 
And also, it puts internal beauty on display, he is saying. The caution against external adorning here clearly is not to be taken woodenly, as in zero tolerance for hair braiding, um, never wearing any gold jewelry or, or any clothes, for that matter. Because if we took this wooden, woodenly, he is prohibiting clothes, which would be an interesting way to influence your husband, but that is not what Peter had in mind <laughs> at this point in his letter, I don't think. Um, so clearly, this is a matter, ladies, of emphasis, right, of priority. Um, your great concern is not the external, but the internal, which he says is imperishable, in sharp contrast to external beauty, which requires a do-over every morning, right? Proverbs 31 puts it this way, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. And so... Peter is urging the cultivation and display of a gentle and quiet spirit, um, which just bears to mind, uh, which preoccupies you more in the mornings? Which preoccupies you more in the mornings? He's urging the cultivation and display of a gentle and quiet spirit, which honestly can be depressing to the extroverted, exuberant, loud party girls in our midst, right? If this is, if this is godliness, I have no hope, some of you are thinking. Um, the good news is, it's, what he's saying here, it's not about being more introverted. It's not even about volume, okay? Um, Sue Bolin writes in her column, uh, it's good news. A gentle and quiet spirit is different than a gentle and quiet personality. A woman can have a dynamic, energetic, live out loud personality and still glorify God in her gentle and quiet spirit. And so those words can be off-putting at times, if not outright confusing. So you, you could think about it as a humble and calm spirit. Not arrogant, not self-absorbed, not readily troubled or distressed. Humble and calm. And it's interesting, these are traits we find in Jesus himself, right? Matthew 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, so this, is, this is the way of Jesus, not just the way of wives. So if your husband were to say to you, ladies, so um, did you just like give up on the whole gentle and quiet spirit thing or what? Um, you could say, what about you, buddy? But that would probably just kind of prove his point, I guess. So maybe there's a better way. So, but ladies, I hope you have a sense here that what you are being called to above everything else is the way of Jesus and his likeness in your marriage. It's the way of submission and godly conduct and a humble, calm, trusting spirit. While these things are not exclusively feminine, obviously if we see them in Jesus, they are uniquely powerful in marriage in the life of a Christ-following wife as she seeks to 
honor Christ and influence her husband towards God. These things are radically others focused on the glory of God and the good of your husband. As Professor Karen Jobes points out, Peter's point is that Christians must be ready to suffer unjustly because of their relationship to God in Christ. What Peter is calling you to, as you know so well, is not easy. It is hard. But I hope you sense the pleasure of God on your life as you walk in this way. Peter says it is very precious in God's sight. So submission in marriage is a platform for wives to display Christ-likeness through godly conduct and inner beauty in a unique way that powerfully draws their husbands towards God. And like so many of Jesus' truths about spirit, the spiritual life and about leadership and influence, it's very upside down, isn't it? So the way to ascend to a pedestal of influence in your husband's life is to descend to the posture of submission to your husband, Peter is saying. And sensing um, your need, he now encourages you in this, in verses five and six. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. But Peter here is essentially saying, hey, hey, you're not alone in this. You are in good company, right? Holy women have been doing this for millennia to the glory of God and the influence of their husbands. They adorned themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, set atop the pedestal of submission for their husbands to see by means of their hope in God. Their hope in God is key. Okay. So I'm preparing this message, and I know I'm out of my depth, right? I know that I have a room full of Half the room are likely experts in this. They've thought more about it. They've applied it more beautifully than I ever have, that's for sure. So I, I sent out some inquiries to a number of ladies in our church and asked them, so how does this work? Um, and they consistently pointed that placing their hope and trust in God supremely and not their husband was what enabled them to live this passage out. One of them said, the gentle and quiet spirit before the Lord is rooted 100% in trust in God. Another said, my submission to my husband helps him lead me. When I am rebellious, it makes it hard for him to lead me, our children and others. Ultimately, my submission is a demonstration of my confidence in the sovereign power of God. I must trust God to leave my husband to lead me. It is in trusting God and not circumstance that makes my joy complete. So again, again, ladies, um, your communion with God matters. It fuels all of this. 
your ability to draw near to him and trust him safeguards this whole posture of trusting submission. And you are not alone in this. Holy women of old have walked this path of trust in God long before you. And then Peter holds up Sarah in the Old Testament, Abraham's wife, as an example. Right? He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that is frightening. And so people have scratched their heads a lot about what exactly was going on in Sarah's life where she obeyed Abraham, called him Lord, and um, that Peter has in mind here. And again, um, Professor Jobes shares one of the more intriguing ones. She says that um, some scholars see Sarah and Abraham as parallels to the Christian life who is called to suffer um, for the husband who disobeys the word. The significance of Peter's reference reflects Sarah's Christ-like decision to save her husband's life by being willing to suffer for his sake, while Abraham's conduct exemplifies a husband who is disobedient to the word. Um, But more generally, she writes that Sarah is a virtuous woman in the Old Testament, and virtuous women are understood to be obedient to their husbands. Peter instructs Christian women, she writes, who may have been familiar with the Greek role models of the day, to look instead to the founding first lady of God's covenant people in the tradition that they now embrace as their own. By virtue of being born again into the living hope of the gospel, Sarah has become their spiritual ancestor, and in Christian thinking, that motivates wifely behavior. The Greek moral philosophers are now to be replaced with the writings of Yahweh's prophets. And Peter says then, you are Sarah's children, kind of in a like mother, like daughter kind of way. If you do good, and I think he has hoping in God demonstrated in submission in mind, if you do good and do not give in to fear because the place of submission is a place of vulnerability, right? Hoping and trusting in God is the only antidote to fear here. Another quote from one of our North Wake um, ladies. She says, I believe that this type of heart only comes fully by trusting God completely and living a life that desires to honor the Lord, not ourselves, in all that we do. Submission, um, one of the things that's always helped me to think more carefully about what Peter is saying about submission is... uh, It's an article that was written by Professor Wayne Grudem a number of years ago. And he described for me and others what submission in 1 Peter, in this passage, these are all drawn from this passage, is not. He said submission does not mean, there's supposed to be a not in there, putting a husband in the place of Christ. Yeah, let's, let's, let's just make that really clear. Submission does not mean, can you fix that for me by the second service, please? Whoa. Uh, that is not a Freudian thing, I guarantee him. Submission does not mean, thank you, there we go. Yes, redeemed. Uh, submission does not mean giving up independent thought. Submission does not mean that the wife should give in to every demand of her husband. 
Um, submission is not based on lesser competence or intelligence. Submission does not mean being fearful or timid. Submission is not inconsistent with equality, as we'll see in just a moment. He goes on to say, submission does mean it has an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. Um, and I will post that and our women's ministry leadership are going to post other articles this week on the leader blog um, just to encourage you uh, along this line. But submission in our day suffers brutal caricature. Um, I ran across this, um, this blog at, uh, in, at Christian Century. Uh, she says, Biblical womanhood, headship, and male authority teaches women that they have no right to choose. Well, anything. A trip to the mall is up to their husband. If he decides, it's his business. If he determines that she needs to stay at home and homeschool her kids instead of teaching grad school with her PhD, then there is no discussion. She gets no say in the matter. If he decides that he wants to have sex, then her headache is of no consequence. If he decides that she needs to be thinner, then she goes on a diet. If he decides that she needs to wear makeup, then she goes to Sephora. Let me just say, that is nothing like what Peter is talking about. Nothing like what Peter is talking about it. And brothers, if you hear yourself in that, then know that today the kindness of God is calling you to repent. Okay. If you hear echoes like that in you, then you are far from God's goodwill for your bride. Far, far from it. These distortions are based far too often on distortions in the minds and lives of Christian husbands. One pastor said he, he actually sat in his office and counseled a husband who believed that submission meant his wife should not go from one room to the other in the house without asking his permission. That is not submission. That is neurotic control, evil neurotic control. Nothing could be further from what God is asking of Christian husbands. And so mercifully, Peter now turns and addresses husbands. Now it's often pointed out that Peter uses six verses to speak to wives and only one verse for husbands. And my sense for that is that if it was any longer, men wouldn't read it. <laughs> so, but brothers, he has not spared us Okay, he has not spared us here. These are weighty, weighty teachings for us. And Peter must consider what he's about to say to men at the utmost of importance. Um, it is the only time he addresses those in positions of authority as it relates to submission. He calls citizens to submit to their government, and yet he does not address government leaders. He calls slaves to submit to masters, and yet he does not address the masters themselves. Yet here he calls wives to submit to their husbands, and he feels compelled to address their husbands. Brothers, we ought to be on the edge of our seats at this point in time. He is about to say something very, very important. So he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives 
in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And Peter says we must live with our wives in an understanding way, with knowledge, he says, having knowledge. And it's not entirely clear exactly what he means. Some say it's knowledge of what God is teaching, surely. Others say it's knowledge of your wife, what she desires and delights in. I think there would be lots of amens to that. Um, but I think what Peter is focused on here primarily is uh, he wants us to understand their place uh, in submission to us. I think, I think that may be at the forefront of what he's thinking. Because of what he says next, he's about to say, honor them. And then he says three very particular things about how we're supposed to honor them. Brothers, we are to honor our wives. She should feel honored by you. So brothers, as we honor our wives, we are to value her as the weaker vessel. showing honor to her, valuing her as the weaker vessel. Now, some have suggested that that means she's weaker spiritually, which if you've ever, like, set foot in church, you know that that's nonsense, right? Uh, nobody in their right mind would say for long that North Wake women are somehow weaker than their husbands spiritually, uh, that's, that's just a kind of madness. And numerous scriptures would also contest that. But others have said that women are weaker physically. And that may be generally true. To me, it's a little bit of a non sequitur to Peter here to all of a sudden turn to physical things um, as he's talking about it. Um, but, but with that in mind, some scholars have pointed out that this idea of living with them with knowledge, it's used elsewhere in the scripture to refer to sexual intimacy and that what could be going on here um, is that Peter is saying that a husband should never use his physical strength to dominate in the bedroom. And though I'm not convinced that's Peter's primary meaning, brothers, should go without saying that you should never force yourself sexually in any way on any woman, anywhere, at any time, including your wife. And if you have fallen into that pattern, let us help you repent today. It is a grievous thing. Now, what I do think is at the forefront of Peter's mind here, as I indicated, is that we would honor her in her place of submission to us in her vulnerability there. Peter is saying, to us that we would value that and honor her for the vulnerable position that she's willing to place herself in for our good to bring Christ to us. 
We honor our wives in their vulnerable position of submission to us by our consideration, he says, by our protection, not by our demands. Professor Scott McKnight cites a well-known evangelical leader as saying, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. It's good wisdom. So I ran across an article that described a woman who she's named anonymously in this letter, but she's named as Deb. And it says that her husband knew the Bible well and proclaimed his Christian faith boldly. They studied scripture together, they prayed together and hosted Bible studies in their home. But a domineering nature lurked behind this, his confident, God-fearing front. He spent years tearing down Deb's sense of security and self-worth. She says, I had things broken around me, threats made to me, emotional games played on me, a knife held to my throat, a gun placed to my head. She says, the Bible itself was even used as a weapon against me, always out of context, mind you, but used nonetheless. He blamed his outbursts on Deb. And for years, she bought the lie that she was partially responsible. She thinks, I, I had to have been doing something wrong if things weren't going well in a relationship that included God, right? I tried so hard to be godly, and the Bible told me, submit to my husband. Maybe God just wanted me to suffer a bit to make me more holy. Besides, it wasn't that bad. She says, he never hit me. But the article says it was bad enough that their marriage disintegrated under the strain and left them brokenhearted, fearful, and ashamed. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one in four American women experienced domestic abuse in her lifetime. One in four. And the numbers are no better among churchgoers. The numbers are no better amongst churchgoers. Brothers, how can that be? So we are to honor our wives as weaker by our protection and thoughtful understanding of their place not by our dictatorial control or by overpowering them physically, ever. So we are to honor our wives, Peter says, bearing in mind that they are weaker vessels and yet they are heirs with us, he says, of the grace of life. This is the language of equality, brothers. They are on equal ground spiritually with us. Their vulnerable place in the marriage is not a reflection of spiritual inequality. To treat your wife as spiritually inferior, to treat her as a child or as a servant, is so horribly out of sync with how God thinks about your wife. See, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Paul says. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ. Your wife, brothers, is not your housemaid. She's not your nanny. She's not just another income stream. She is not your escort. She is a fellow heir of the grace of life. Nothing less. She is nothing less than you. And God have mercy on you if you treat her as less. 
The old saying is that the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. Brothers, don't diminish the work of Jesus on the cross with your gender discrimination and the belittling of your bride. We are to honor our wives, bearing in mind that they are weaker vessels, yet heirs with us in the grace of life. For to fail to do that, he says, will hinder your prayers. Did you ever wonder, guys, why the sermons seem so incredibly long? And the classes that we offer are so disinteresting. And the Bible, truthfully, is pretty boring. And God, your mind wanders in prayer and God seems so very distant and so wholly unavailable in response to your prayers. You ever wonder why that, why it's like that? Sin does that. One of the reasons that happens, not, not always, but frequently sin does that. This sin does that, Peter is saying. It hinders our prayers. It distances us from God. Isaiah famously in the Old Testament wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Could it be that your failure to honor your wife and to live with her in an understanding way is what is behind all the spiritual brokenness in your soul, brothers? As Peter's about to say, we'll hear it when we get back into 1 Peter. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So many of you are probably aware that the Houston Chronicle published a series of articles recently that was a revelation of um, domestic abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is our, our denomination that we we're linked to. 20 years, 700 victims said 20 years of research 700 victims perpetrated by men in positions of leadership in our churches the terrifying thing is that's just people in leadership I shudder to think what we have tolerated in the pew so to speak this is grievous, grievous to God, to our, our sisters and brothers. Let's be clear, this is on us, right? We must not look the other way when we see a brother mistreating his bride, okay? Can't look the other way. On this matter, we stand with our sisters. And so, if it's you this morning, and God is poking you now, saying, it's you. This is what you've been doing to your bride. 
then there's only one path out of this, brothers, and that's the path of repentance. There's no other way. You can't hide this. You can't cover it up before an all-knowing, all-seeing God. But his kindness leads you to repentance, and your prayers will be hindered until you do, and surely your pride is not worth that. That you would live estranged from your God. Now, before all this came to light, just, gosh, I guess it's just been in the last month or so that that article's been written. Uh, last year, there was formulated at North Wake uh, a team of men and women um, led by one of, our, um, one of our elders, Tom Iverson, um, that is developing a way to respond in a God-honoring fashion should there ever, God forbid, be an accusation of sexual abuse brought against someone at North Wake in leadership. Um, so I, I bring that up because, ladies, I want you to know that we want North Wake to be a place of refuge for you. And so, if you are suffering abuse, or if you have, and you feel it is, it is shaping you in ways that are harmful to you yet still, then know that we would welcome you to come to us, and our first posture is to believe you and protect you. And all the counseling resources of our church will be made available to you. If you are being abused and you cannot come to us for some reason because of the shape of your abuse, then you can call this domestic violence hotline. It's 1-800-799-SAFE. And the process for getting you help and protection can begin just with making that call. Um, you know, Jesus has a way of turning everything upside down, doesn't he? Thank God he has turned this upside down for us. We are not to live this way, not like the broken world around us. But wives influence their husband because of their hope in God and they put themselves on the pedestal of submission where their godly conduct and the beauty of their gentle and quiet spirit is on display in a way that only God could design. And husbands live in an understanding way, honoring their wives, honoring their wives as weaker yet co-heirs in this grace of life that we have. Tonight, six o'clock in this room, we gather for our monthly prayer gathering. We're praying for marriages tonight. Um, if your marriage is in a hard place, you should come. We'll pray for you. You only have to disclose what, what you're comfortable disclosing. All you have to say is, we could sure use some prayer. I will pray for you. Um, if things are good for you in your marriage, I hope you'll come and pray. Because this is... Um, 
This is, Satan launches more attacks in this area on our church family than just about any that I know. And uh, your prayers matter in that. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual battle, and your coming to fight with us matters. If you're single, I hope you'll come to pray for those of us who are in this trench called marriage, fighting for Christ, the reputation of Christ in it. And we will have a time to pray for our singles as well at the close of our time tonight. But uh, I hope you'll come 6 o'clock tonight uh, in this room. So let me pray for us and, and we'll, we'll be done.